Hello, this is Suzanne Lewis, and I'd like to welcome you to Convivium Salon, a podcast produced by Revolution of Tenderness. Today I'm going to read to you a story that was first published in the second volume of Convivium Journal back in 2017. The story is called Fugue, and it was written by one of our regular contributors, Pellegrine Duel. The girl peered over the guardrail, down the sloped cement wall, at the tarnished foil of the Schuylkill River. How far down was the water? She was no good at calculating distances. Call it way far. The guardrail reached only to the middle of her thigh, so to steady herself she had to lean out over the icy, sullen air. On her other side, Two short steps to the left, the strip of shoulder met the outer lane of Route 76, where the car's careening momentum batted gusts of brittle wind into her ears and eyes. The hum and whine as cars approached and sheared past was interrupted by the occasional blast of a horn from indignant motorists who wanted her to know she didn't belong. From the commuter train through scratched, double-walled, grease-smeared windows, the path along the highway had seemed simple. She had seen the South Street exit ramp off of 76. From 30th Street Station, the walk along the highway looked short. She imagined that maybe there was even a pedestrian walkway just out of sight. South Street was the part of Philly where you could buy patchouli, a real café au lait. Little tin boxes paved in sequins, clove cigarettes, a fez, or a Catalonian beret. Single earrings, a used copy of On the Road that once belonged to one of the more obscure beat poets. John Lee Hooker's latest record, Loose Oolong Tea. Or at least some or one of those scarce and covetable things. She had on her torn thrift store flowered pants covered in Joni Mitchell lyrics she doodled on every stretch she could reach. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. She also wore both strands of Czech glass beads she'd bought during a family trip to the Prague night market. Five dollars for the two of them. They reached down to her belly, and when she wore them, they seemed to help Certain people recognize the resemblance she had to a young, fresh-faced Janis Joplin. Out here on the shoulder of 76, the perspective was different than it had been from the train. The sky was claustrophobic. The low, icy rail bit at her fingers as she stepped carefully, as close to the sheer drop into Schuylkill's Charybdis as she could stay, without falling. She resented those trucks for wobbling and leaning unpredictably without respecting the painted lines. Great Scylla fists of wind slammed her, and their crushing weight caused the road surface to shudder and roll under them. Honestly, though, did it seem likely that her life could end simply because she hadn't thought to ask anyone for directions here? on this damn highway suspended over the emptiness 
of frozen air and filthy far-off water. Back when her dad was stationed in Iran and then Romania, they'd narrowly missed the Tehran hostage crisis, only to then survive the earthquake in Bucharest. She should have died in Bucharest. That chair where she'd been sitting just a moment earlier had shattered under the china cabinet, while jagged display glass flung out, clinking and crashing everywhere. And then, as the floor churned, that one perfect amputated chair leg had rolled in spirograph patterns before coming to rest against her own intact leg. On the other hand, anything could rush to culmination at any time, but not after the years of constant movement, never longer than a year or two in any given school, and each leave-taking like a genocide, all those people just gone behind her. No, her sense of justice could not allow her to imagine death when she wasn't yet happy, not at all. Wasn't a Roman candle burn, burn, burning, and hadn't even begun to kindle. Now, far from being safer, she discovered, having reached the green highway sign with its arrow shooting off towards South Street, that there wasn't any shoulder at all on the exit ramp. It seemed as though each and every car in the state of Pennsylvania blasted its horn as she climbed the hump of the exit, as if she hadn't noticed it was unsafe. It wasn't yet her time yet, suckers. She wanted to throw her arms out and shout, Thank you, to all for the welcoming salute, but it took all her focus and both hands holding that low guardrail to get past the exit and onto the sidewalk, finally on South Street. And then she looked around to get her bearings. Rotten wood or plywood doors tagged with a slanting calligraphy she could not read, guarded empty storefronts, parked cars all salt-stained and rusted hoods and stripped tires, windows with plastic sheeting in place of glass, crumbling curbs, black untied garbage bags spilling over onto stoops, and no one out walking, not a single human face, nothing to do but move. Lucky there was only one direction to go in. She took out a cigarette and lit it. Then putting the river to her back, she set out down South Street, past 29th, 28th, 27th Streets. After four blocks, she saw a person, diagonal from her across the street and up ahead. The man lifted his arm, shook his fist. A sense of violence crackled around him. Not because he was African-American, but because his gaze had fixed on her just as a rifle sight locks onto its target. Her mind, as though detached from what was happening, was about to happen, took note that he wore navy work pants and an old gray jacket zipped to his chin. She heard him scream out something, a curse, but the cold air swallowed the words. As he approached, she reached into her front pants pocket, took out her pack of goloise, shook one loose, and held it out toward him. Some unconsidered delicacy made her careful not to let him get a good look at the package. He stopped up short when she said, 
Oh, did you want a cigarette? Here you go, sir. Looking confused, he took the smoke and let her light it for him off of her blue plastic bick. As his cigarette caught flame, the air between their faces huffed with the intimacy of breathy steam and smoke, a kind of room just the two of them inhabited, surrounded as they were by cold, bleak emptiness. When she turned, deliberate, making no sudden moves to continue her casual stroll down South Street, the fragile room dissipated, and only their twin plumes trailed behind as he settled into stride beside her, taking long drags on the cigarette and furtive looks at her out of the corner of his eye. I'm looking for South Street, she told him. You're on South Street, he said. What did he make of her bohemian college girl get up her exotic beads and fancy French smokes? Why are you looking for it? I'm supposed to meet my boyfriend on South Street. He didn't say where exactly, though. She didn't have a boyfriend, but last night, the sophomore crossed the hall of the close-set ink-spot eyes and the fall of straw hair always tumbling heavily into his face, had invited her to join him and his buddies in a trip to South Street. Together. That was supposed to happen today. Last night, he shoved the hair away so she could see him, wanting her to see him wanting her, and had said to her, I'm looking at you now and can imagine you at 70, but I just can't picture you as a 40-year-old. Later, his fingers had found the scar on her upper arm, poorly stitched by the army doctor in Tehran, after she'd ripped it open on some barbed wire while chased by, as it turned out, harmless dogs, fingering the uneven welts as though reading a braille message meant only for him. But this morning she didn't see him or his liquor-sopped pals anywhere. Not in Sherman Lounge, not in Caslington Dining Hall, not in the library. Maybe she'd overslept and they left without her? That familiar genocide feeling, only this time she'd been the one left behind, crept into her chest cavity and out of sheer spite in the face of all those involuntary leave-takings. She'd march to the railway station to catch the next train into the city and South Street, and who needs a boy to have fun anyway? My boyfriend should be showing up here any minute. Mm-hmm, he answered noncommittally. You know it ain't safe out here for you. I gotta tell you, that I wasn't asking for no cigarette back there. I was going to attack you. You wouldn't do that. I don't believe it. She tried hard not to let sarcasm creep into her tone. Don't believe me then, but there's others who would do it in my place. You got no business being up here. It's dangerous for you. Well, where's the safe part of South Street then? Further on up the road, he pointed with his chin, finished his cigarette, dropped it, and ground it into the pavement with his shoe. A lot further. Immediately, she pulled out two more Gaulois from the pack, handed him one, and lit them both. They smoked in a silence that was almost companionable 
for another block or two before he said, look, I want you to come up in my place for a beer. Without turning her head, she glanced sideways at him. Aside from the flash of fury he'd shown at the beginning, his expression had been like a spent match as she'd walked beside him. She was no better at guessing ages than she was at eyeballing distances. She had noticed that he had no white in his hair, and he was built like a rugby player, solid and strong. Yet his face and the skin of his hands had a gray, chalky color just under the brown. And deep frown lines slashed his forehead and where his cheeks gathered to squint against the chill. He knew he shouldn't be asking her to his apartment, right? Not after telling her his plan to attack her. Um, see, my boyfriend is going to be worried about me. He's going to be looking for me and all. Every other step, his elbow almost touched her shoulder, but didn't. I can see what you're thinking, that it ain't safe to go up in a strange man's apartment, but my wife is there. I'm going to ring the bell, and she'll stick her face up out the window. Then you'll know that you can come up and sit a while. Sir, that sounds very nice. I mean, I, I love that. It's just, you see, my boyfriend, he'll keep. You ain't got nothing to fear by me. Evidently, they had come to his building because he paused, reached up, and rang a button beside the door. As promised, a woman's face appeared in an upper window. She looked down at the man and scowled. Her ashy, dark skin and deep frown lines were similar to his, but she looked even older. Then the door clicked and he held it open for her. That's my wife, he said. So you know I ain't lying. This was a terrible idea. She knew it, and everybody said so. Everybody was right, too. The staircase beyond the open door was narrow and dark. The anger she had first discerned in this man's expression and voice seemed to have slid off him and were now puddled in this entryway, where hatred and misery took form in frays and stains in the carpet and in a mildewed darkness that had grown deep with the odor of contempt for all who passed there. What were her options? Did she care? If she were to run, she didn't fear that he'd catch her. Was it that wretched hesitation to be rude? No, she was past that. Whereas out on the highway over the Schuylkill, she had clinically weighed the possibility of her sudden violent death. And then, as he'd first crossed the street with his arm up, she hadn't been concerned, not really. Later, as they were walking, when all seemed safe, her nerves had stretched tight and buzzing and caused a metallic pain in her teeth. That was called anxiety. But now she found this other emotion inside her. Was it curiosity? Was it the wish to shake her fist at the malevolent darkness of that building? She hesitated and then entered through the door that he held open. She knew how important it would be to name the reason. He slipped past her so that she could watch herself follow this Orpheus on the stairs. Perhaps she simply lacked imagination in that moment. Turning around was clearly an option, 
but she continued, wasn't exactly curiosity, but a similar inclination. The faint pull of involvement, a quiet desire, or maybe the stir of her own life. Up in the one room the couple shared, the man's wife sat at an oval table. The top of the table was covered in contact paper with a white marble pattern and air bubbles and creases on the surface. Oblong cigarette burns crisscrossed its edges. When she pulled the pack from her pocket and placed a handful of Gaulois in the center of the table as a sign that the man and his wife could smoke what they wanted, the table rocked slightly. Neither the man nor his wife touched the small pile, so she picked up two and offered them. The man took the cigarette from her with an easy familiarity, which caused his wife to fold her arms across her chest turn her head and huff sharply in exasperation. The man drew two old Milwaukee's out of his fridge and put one in front of the girl. Wouldn't your wife want one? she asked the man. This brought out another exasperated sigh, but no words, and very little movement on the part of this older woman who still hugged herself while staring at the man. He looked at his wife in surprise as though noticing her for the first time since entering the room, then shook his head, more to himself as though trying to fight off distraction. I know what them beads are that you got there round your neck. He gestured with the beer can at her necklaces. She remembered the glass blower whose sleeves were pocked with small black-edged holes where sparks had accidentally fallen. Two frayed men, this one with his tired face and nothing else but the table and a cramped mattress in a corner of the floor and a window whose crack had been traced with clear packing tape. The other in Prague with a family and a furnace and tourists to seduce on market night. Their lives held no connection but through her. They for praying on, Sister Helen has them same beads. You ever meet Sister Helen? Who? She gulped at the beer in front of her. Great lady, that Sister Helen. Long Thanksgiving, she come up in here and give us a chicken. Oh, these beads, they aren't a rosary. They're not for praying, just decoration, she said. They're cheap. She turned to his wife to see if she was convinced, but she kept staring at her man. Mm-hmm, he said. If you ain't met Sister Helen, you got to. It's obligatory. Then he chuckled. On the TV, they say all manner of things. They say a man walked on the moon one day. 1969, one small step. The year her younger sister had been born. She knew from the Time Life special fold-out edition Grandma had sent, the same one that told about Nixon becoming president and the man setting himself on fire and Woodstock and the Manson family writing pigs in the blood of their pregnant victim and John and Yoko getting married. But they have ways of making it look like there's a man on the moon when it's all a lie, you know. They can move the mirrors, make it look like anything's happening he said, dropping the butt of his cigarette into his beer can and rattling it until the smoldering end found enough moisture and hissed. 
There was never no man on the moon, I can guarantee. But Sister Helen says she believes in a man walking on the moon. That's fine for her. She got practice in believing what all. That Sister Helen don't just believe it, though. She hates the very thought of it, that they got some man up there prancing. She says give the money to the poor, that no one got any business with no man on the moon. Use the money for food, she says. People's got to have priorities. I can understand that, she said. I mean, it's more important to feed people. I think I agree with what she says about priorities. That other part about the moon landing being a hoax, though, gave her vertigo. She never imagined a person who could doubt something so well documented. She popped the small stub of her own butt into the man's beer can, reached across the table, picked up two cigarettes, handed him one, and looked over to his wife. Her stillness was only betrayed by a bunched muscle in her jaw. Handing the lighter to the man, the girl decided not to hold the flame for him while under this woman's roof. She began to wonder why she'd been hiding the Gaulois' package from him, or whether he disbelieved in the existence of France, too. Looking around this threadbare room of off-kilter surfaces, the moon seemed so far away, like a fantasy she'd projected on the sky. The things that mattered, that were discussed, that absorbed the people who sat at this table were worlds and worlds away from the rooms she'd ever known. I've seen you on the television, mm-hmm. He pronounced these words with the same certainty he'd had when telling her about her beads. Um, you must have me mixed up with someone else. In Bucharest, at least they'd had the door frame to squeeze into as the floor reeled. Here, all she had was the old Milwaukee and an extra tall can growing warm faster than she could swallow it. I have never been on television, I can guarantee. Oh, it was you. Think I don't know? But I'm just a... What was she anyway? A, a college student. I have, I have no reason to be on television. You know what else I saw? your parents, and they was crying and begging you to come back home and be safe. Mm-hmm, crying and begging. Her thoughts slowed as had the chair leg before it finally stopped spinning and pressed gently against her leg. Oh, I'm not a runaway, sir. I just talked to my parents on the telephone yesterday. They know where I am, where I live. They know I'm okay. If they could see her in this crooked room, they would know she was no such thing. But just talk to them yesterday. It's okay, really. A big smile. Make it sincere. She gave a long pull on her gauloise. Then she upended her beer into her mouth and swallowed the dregs like they were water. It's been so nice to visit with you on both. I can see it's starting to get dark outside, though. I should be heading back. Sister Helen has a shelter out on 18th. She look out for them girls. I can take you to her. No, really. I've got a room, a bed. I go to college. I have a safe life out in the suburbs. 
I came in on the train. She stood. Nothing felt solid, not the wrapped table, not the linoleum floor, not the mismatched chairs. The sun was fading, and it really would be dark soon. Surely he could see this wasn't a television trick. That case, I'll walk you to the station and watch you up onto that train. He picked up the two remaining cigarettes from the center of the table and handed them to her. The certainty had drained out of him and left only sadness in its place. Once back on the sidewalk, must have been four, maybe five o'clock, the air held shadows, even as the slate cloud cover glowed faintly orange. The cross street numbers continued to descend as he resumed their former direction, but at a quickened pace. Then, at the corner of 18th and South, he paused. They had come to the street where Sister Helen took in wayward girls. The black tide of night was rushing in, unremitting. She opened her mouth, but he held up a hand to halt any objections she might have. She did not want to meet any crazy nun, nor try to convince anyone she was what she after all was, nor did she want anyone to offer her a damn chicken. Had the sister roasted it first, or had she given the man and his wife the raw carcass of a bird, hmm? She hadn't seen any stove while she was there, just the fridge, empty but for a couple cases of old Milwaukee. To the man and his wife, uncooked meat would have been just as useful as Neil Armstrong tap dancing around on Mars. The man hung a left onto 18th, and she had to skip to keep up. He slipped into a storefront, the first occupied one that she'd seen all day. A buzzer on the door could have woken the neighbors across the street. She watched the man buy two packs of cool superlights and another of unfiltered camels. Then he turned and put the camels into her hand while she stood there, unable to close her fingers around it. I don't know what shit we've been smoking all afternoon, but seemed to be like last year's crumbs up off the floor that you rolled in toilet paper, girl. She thought about protesting, but when everything is upside down, to correct just one element would make everything more dizzying. He tapped the package she held in her open palm. You take these cigarettes because if I know nothing at all, I know you pour. The injustice of it made her choke. Poor! She had wronged this man, lied to him. Everything about her was the false bottom of a magician's box, under which her real self hid. So what that she hadn't intended it, never dreamed anyone could come to this crazy conclusion? Poor! She and her best friend from high school used to dream up alternate personas and try them out on strangers. One afternoon on a ski lift, she'd been eight different people, complete with separate accents and backstories, and when some of her lift partners hadn't been convinced, she'd been bewildered to see them get all angry. Why did they care who she was, really? Why did she always have to be herself? But she had come to South Street today precisely as herself, had even felt the tug of her own actual life when faltering on the stoop to his building. Maybe she shouldn't have gone inside. Rather than go back out the front of the convenience store, 
The man led the way to a door at the back, knocked quietly, and then opened the door himself. The room had no windows and seemed only to be illumined by night lights. The smoke had nowhere to go, so it hung in loops that grew heavier by the moment. The men smoked together at one end of the room, while the women stood in an uneven line in front of a low counter, looking neither to left nor right. The man closed the door and then wove into the thick of the group of other men. She heard his laugh, but there was no humor in it. He gestured toward her, standing awkward by the door, and the predatory eyes of his pals held the same icy sting as the air over the Schuylkill. Looking to the women did not bring her any warmth. Their eyes would not acknowledge her presence at all. The floor had a deep, fluffy shag carpet of unidentifiable color. Before she could start to size up the others in the large plate glass mirrors that leaned against the walls, the man led her through a back door and through a side alley, and they were back on South Street and descending. Still no sidewalk cafes, nor head shops, nor tattoo parlors. She heard no music, but now there were people walking in twos and threes, laughing too loud, trying too hard. The man walked so quickly that she could barely keep pace beside him. When he paused to light up one of his cools, he didn't turn to offer her the flame. Why had he taken her to that back room? Was it a drug den? Had he wanted to show her off like a trophy? Things had happened to her that afternoon, but she didn't know what they were. Her mind kept tripping over the word poor. Because it did not, could not apply to her, she turned it over and over trying to decode it. Was it synonymous with fraud? Without warning, the man turned left on 16th Street, up the steep, narrow, crowded sidewalk. If that word applied to her at all, it had to do with an inner poverty, but that was an unpleasant image. Now it was fully dark. She'd lost the precise moment of nightfall when she was inside that windowless den, and here on 16th Street, the Saturday evening revelers took purposeful steps towards some gathering spot, some house where they would find diversion, a recreation, some light. None were as purposeful as the man walking beside her. He was the only black man, but rather than sticking out, he simply seemed alone, invisible, wrapped in his menthol veil. He acknowledged no one as he stormed forward through the crowd. And then she looked up and saw the sophomore on the sidewalk with his friends. Within the ring of laughter and lifted collars, she saw his face startle as he shook the hair from his eyes. Recognition flashed across his features, and she even saw pleasure there in his black eyes. The entire circle of fellow students had all noticed her now and were staring, smiling as she sprinted up the sidewalk toward them, and then she furtively waved at them as she continued past without breaking stride. Could she have stopped the man to explain, make introductions, show him that this was who she was? Would the sophomore freak out that she'd spent the afternoon with this man going into his home? Craning around, she saw that like that, the students' looks of welcome and gladness 
faded to confusion as she kept up with the man's brisk uphill climb. She threw one last glance over her shoulder to see the little knot of friends staring after her. Soon after passing an obscenely large clothespin, she and the man had come to the entrance to Philadelphia's suburban station, the next stop on the commuter train after 30th Street Station. He watched her purchase a one-way ticket back to her college town, then walked her down to the platform. Before stepping onto the train, she turned to him and offered her hand. He shook it awkwardly. How many handshakes had he had in his life? Thank you, she said. But why? Because he didn't attack her? Or for the beer and the pack of camels he never should have had to pay for? You young, you can get out of this. You go on, make something out of your life. He looked disappointed in himself, in her, and even in Sister Helen. You ain't got to look for no South Street. Then she was alone on the train as it stuttered and hiccuped slowly away from the city. Everybody was wrong. Forever from now, she would be the girl who'd sat at the man's table and drank that hastily gulped beer and this made all the difference. She fingered the glass beads that now pooled into her lap. Likely she was as wrong about the meaning of his raised fist, that smoky den in back of the convenience store, his wife. And the sophomore was wrong about why she had kept walking. The memory made her ribs ache with all the goodbyes she'd ever said or left unsaid. She tried to look out the train window, but it simply gave back her own face, floating unreachable in the outside darkness, surrounded by a rectangular halo of golden electric light. This reading was brought to you by Revolution of Tenderness. For more information on the work of Revolution of Tenderness and Convivium, please visit our website at www.revolutionoftenderness.net. Thank you for listening.